the evangelical Christian population in the United States includes millions of Israel's staunchest friends and supporters. Is that about to change? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Ever since Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza began less than three weeks ago, anti-Semites have been coming out of the woodwork and shown their true colors both on social media and on the street. The idea that Israel has no right to exist at all has moved from the fringes of discussion into the mainstream conversation. And because anti-Zionism is almost always anti-Semitism, Jews living outside of Israel have been attacked, vilified, spat upon, called Nazis, and more. Criticism of Israel, of course, is not inherently anti-Semitic. But holding Israel to standards no other country needs to uphold, caring about supposed Israeli atrocities while ignoring far greater issues in many other countries, seeing only one side of the issue, calling any defense of Israel an inherently racist position without even giving that position the opportunity to defend itself questioning Israel's right to exist at all by defining Judaism for us Jews rather than listening to how we Jews define Judaism, all these and more are not criticism of Israel. They are the modern embodiment of anti-Semitism. Before the Holocaust, many Catholics in Europe said that anti-Semitism is of course wrong, but anti-Judaism is understandable. Nowadays, that distinction sounds laughable, but at the time, it was anything but. And I believe that one day, people will similarly marvel at the attempts to distinguish anti-Zionism from anti-Semitism today. Now, the evangelical Christian population in the United States consists of many very strong supporters of Israel, for which we're so grateful. In the face of so much anti-Israel sentiment, it has been encouraging to know that the Jewish people can rely on the friendship of so many Christians. But a recent article in the Times of Israel suggested that among younger evangelicals, these pro-Israel sentiments may be evaporating. To better understand this concerning development, I spoke with my friend Rabbi Pesach Wilicki and Pastor Doug Reed. Before we begin, let me remind you to please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join and participate in the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Also go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for the Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, I hope five, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halakhically committed, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffee House. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day or, alternatively, record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. 
Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. Pastor Doug Reed has spent the last eight years as the lead pastor of Bridge of Hope Church in Youngstown, Ohio. He regularly appears on Christian television and co-hosts a podcast called The Joe and Doug Show at Youngstown Studio. He is a next-generation pastor, passionate leader, and a gifted communicator. Rabbi Pesach Wolicki is a writer, lecturer, and consultant working in the field of Jewish-Christian relations. He works closely with a number of organizations, including the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. His recent area of focus is evangelical college and seminary campuses, where he is helping the fellowship develop a range of programs. You'll also recognize Pesach from the podcast we jointly host, The Baseball Rabbi. Pastor Doug Reed and Rabbi Pesach Wolicki, thank you both for joining me today on this edition of the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you for having us. It's good to be here, Scott. We're talking about the uptick in anti-Semitism that's taken place over the past few weeks, although perhaps I could argue it's not really an uptick in anti-Semitism. It's more an uptick in overt anti-Semitic behavior. I'm assuming that this behavior is a reflection of some previously held attitudes among many people. Probably the anti-Semitism was always there waiting for an excuse to be activated on the streets. So in recent years, many of us in the Jewish community have been heartened by the support that Israel and the Jewish community receives from the evangelical community. In fact, Doug, seven months ago on this podcast, Pesach and I spoke with John Anderson about exactly that issue. But yesterday, there was a very disturbing article in the Times of Israel, which argued that poll numbers show that this support among evangelical Christians is largely confined to older evangelical Christians, whereas a younger generation demonstrates significantly more tepid support for Israel. I'm going to read you just a couple paragraphs right now from that article. In a poll of over 700 evangelical Christians between the ages of 18 and 29 that was conducted between March and April, respondents were asked where they placed their support in the, quote, Israeli-Palestinian dispute. Just 33.6% said with Israel, 24.3% said with the Palestinians, and 42.2% said with neither side. This marked a significant shift from 2018, that's just three years ago, when 69% of young evangelicals, responding to another survey conducted by UNCP professors, said they would side with Israel, 5.6% said they sided with the Palestinians, and 25.7% said they didn't take either side. So 69% three years ago, 33% now, and this problem seems to be a very recent phenomenon if we can really trust this article. So Pastor Doug, let me start with you. Do you believe that this article represents an accurate and real growing trend, or is some important information missing? I think there's three things with the article. One, I think there's definitions that have been hijacked. Um, I'm I'm shying away more from calling myself an evangelical because it's being hijacked in the political sense. And so there are people that are uh, not of uh, traditional Orthodox Christian values that are now referring to themselves as evangelical. So I'd like to know their definition uh, for that word used in the study. Um, Two, uh, my experience has been uh, that uh, that tends to be true on the older side of evangelicals tend to be uh, more uh, lockstep support for uh, Israel. Uh, however, my my story is uh, is the part that's uh, connected to the article because I am the millennial pastor evangelical. I went through Bible school and I grew up um, thinking that Israel happened five thousand miles away or five thousand years ago. It was important for biblical history, but had no effect on my life personally until 2016 uh, i got taken on a pastor's trip to israel i encountered 
uh, the land, the people, and had uh, a spiritual experience is the best way to, to put it. And I came back and I said, I've been missing this. And this is a huge piece for me. I've taken now and I've led trips of my people back uh, to Israel. That trip to Israel uh, revolutionized for me, somebody who looked at that issue and said, you know, it's not going to help the single mom in my congregation. It's not going to help. Uh, it wasn't at the forefront, has now become a pillar of preaching for me, a pillar of uh, Rabbi Pesach will be in my church here in a couple of weeks. Um, those connections, those relationships have become not just uh, important, but uh, formational. I want to ask you about something that you just said. In, in some ways, I'll say something which I'm not saying is true, but there's a sure. famous line which is said, which is that anybody who's not a liberal when they're young is heartless. Anyone who's not a conservative <laughs> when they're old is a fool. Sure. Now, Okay, forget the political content of that. Yeah. But there is an idea that as people age, they can sometimes move over from one camp to the right. other. Are you suggesting in what you just said that it's likely that some of these younger Christians will develop an affinity for Israel as they get older and learn more about it? Or is that just a vain hope? Uh, I think it's possible. I think we have to be intentional. I think uh, they have to be exposed to the land. I think we have to educate. Um, I think we need to engage them in relationship. It was uh, a ministry called Eagle's Wings um, with uh, Bishop Robert Stearns, who took 35 young evangelical pastors who had never been to Israel, had no context for it, plopped us in the land, introduced us to people, took us around. Um, you know, we spent a day at uh, Knesset and met uh, near Barkat. We met uh, other Knesset members. Um, we, I, I met Rabbi Pesach on that trip, but it was their investment and in allowing us to be exposed to the land and go and the thing that I think is maybe misunderstood is, you know, we come in there and our anticipation is the Sea of Galilee and, uh, you know, everybody thinks the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The things that stood out to me was having Shabbat dinner in an Orthodox Jewish home. Like, I'll never forget that experience that first time and the songs and the laughter and the food. I'd never experienced that in my life. You, you heard about it, but I'd never experienced it. And so experiencing the people like that. Um, but then watching the scriptures come to life was powerful for us. So, uh, you know, coming and sitting at breakfast and, you know, having the realization that like I'm eating Amos 9, like that the, this fruit is the fulfillment of prophecy or standing in the Jewish quarter next to the, the old city wall and the playground and watching children play and reading Zechariah where he says 2,400 years earlier that once again, children will play in the streets of Jerusalem. And I don't need a commentary. And that for me changed everything and flipped the script for me and went, there's more to this issue than just a political stance or something like that. I think the current trends that you're seeing um, have to do with the political left and some of the cancel culture and stuff that's come in and it's come into the evangelical world. And so you have pastors, prominent leaders and others that are concerned about being canceled and they want to be on the side of social justice and some of this stuff. And so where a backbone is required, sometimes there is none. Rabbi Wilicki, I want to ask you about some of the work that you're doing. You are directly engaged with some of the people that I'm talking about now, with students in Christian seminaries who are studying to be pastors. What do you feel about this survey? Let me first mention what you just referred to, the work that I'm doing, to give some context to my comments. In some work that I'm doing uh, with the International Fellowship, in partnership with the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, I'm involved now in creating student clubs, student Israel clubs, and a lot of Christian seminary campuses and, uh, and Christian colleges. 
and going beyond clubs. I'm teaching a course at one seminary right now on Zoom, uh, a course on, you know, Jewish thought and 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 Israel and uh, and just kind of building these relationships. And I visit, you know, before and hopefully after Corona, I visit. Uh, Christian colleges and uh, and seminaries on a regular basis, and I have relationships with a lot of them at this point. Um, before we before we recorded this podcast, I reached out to one of our student leaders, a student leader who who leads our group at Regent University, which is one of the largest and most influential evangelical uh, universities in America. And I asked her what she thought of this article. She had already seen it, and and she said, you know, she said two things. She said, look, she said younger Christians want to be on the side of human rights. Human rights is a big deal and they see it even in a kind of shallow way, they see it as an expression of their Christian value. That you you look after the downtrodden and you and you want to be on the side of human rights. And Christian students also want acceptance by the culture. So if it's something that really runs directly counter to their Christian beliefs in an obvious way, something like abortion, let's say, you know, one of those one of those big issues for Christians, then they're still gonna mostly side with the Christian view or something to do with traditional marriage maybe. But with something that they feel, you know, they maybe there's, there's, they're hearing multiple voices in the Christian world anyway, the, then they're gonna go with the narrative of human rights and, the, and the, the Palestinian side has done a good job of capturing that piece of the narrative that theirs is a human rights issue. That was the first thing she said. The other thing she said was, look at the article. It even said that over 40% of those who responded said that that uh, the religious viewpoint or the biblical viewpoint did not influence their viewpoint of this issue. So that speaks directly to a larger problem, which is, you know, for, for Christians, you know, and it speaks to what, the, you know, what Pastor Doug just said a few minutes ago, that the word evangelical is such a charged word that there's a lot of churches that are even moving away from using it. So, a lot of Jews don't realize this, that evangelical is not a denomination, right? Far from it. Uh, in fact, there's probably hundreds, not thousands of denominations that would all be considered by somebody to be evangelical. It's actually losing its meaning in terms of what it meant. If you looked at all Christians who call themselves evangelical, let's say 25 years ago, there would be much more similarity in their worldview than those who call themselves evangelical today. So you have left-wing evangelicals today. We're not going to get deeper down this rabbit hole, but so the second thing she said to me was, I'd like to see who actually they were talking to. But this is still a real problem. I don't want to I don't want to spin this that the article doesn't know what it's talking about. And, and this also relates to what you said, that even if it's true that people get more conservative or more traditional or more globally worldly in their worldview as they get older, and therefore some of these people are going to shift and become more pro-Israel, that doesn't change the fact that the same demographic a few years ago came out very differently. Right. And that shouldn't be the case. They, the numbers should ostensibly be the same. I think it is a real problem. I think it has a lot to do just with exposure. Uh, I, I think young people today in general are less uh, attuned to these global concerns. Uh, older people might be in a position where they remember the Six-Day War or they have more historical perspective. And that's not just a matter of age. It's a matter of this age. I think this younger generation is, is very much in their bubble um, and, uh, you know, so part of what we're doing is trying to engage them in relationships and keeping away from the politics. That's another thing. An interesting characteristic of this young generation is that they actually view political wrangling as something they want to stay away from. And the popular position to take for young, young people today 
you know, 20 somethings, especially college age kids, is to take whatever the least confrontational position is on every issue. Very true. That's what they look for. So choosing sides in the conflict they're going to shy away from. Notice that in the polling, the biggest change was like the group of the three groups of pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian or no opinion. The group that grew most was no opinion. Yeah. You know, and I think that's really reflective of some larger social consciousness issues in the evangelical world. It sounds like you're also implying that on some level you question whether this survey is even accurate with 700 people being surveyed and they're self-defined evangelicals, I suppose. Who is even this group that they're talking about? So while you're saying that it is a problem, the numbers may not be as stark as it appears from this article alone. Yeah, is that I'll, true? I'll, make a com- I'll make a comment on that, but I'd love to hear what Pastor Doug has to say. When I read the article, the first thing that I thought was, where's the link to the actual polling info? Because, you know, when a poll is quoted in the media, very often you have a link you can click through and you get to the to the home address of the think tank or the university, whoever did the poll, and you can actually read the tabs. What's the actual breakdown? Where did, how were these questions, did they call people? People don't answer phone polls anymore. How was this poll conducted? Did they walk onto college campuses and stop people and say, are you evangelical? Okay, that's already a self-selecting group. That would be evangelicals who go to a secular college and not to a Christian one. I don't know how they found people. I also don't know what the racial breakdown is. And here, let me explain what I mean. One of the biggest changes that ha- that's happened to what we'll call evangelical, you know, Bible-believing Christianity in the last decade or so, and it's happening rapidly, is the shifting of the racial makeup of evangelicals. A lot of Hispanics are becoming evangelicals in very recent times. The evangelical church, which in, in many people's minds, I'm sure many of your listeners, Scott, when they picture evangelicals, they're picturing like white Southern or Midwest. Jerry Falwell. Right. But the evangelical community in America has become much more ethnically diverse uh, over the last few years, and that's and that's accelerated. Now, now why is that important here? Because Latino evangelicals is the is the fastest growing religious demographic in America, and it ain't close. It's growing. It's exploding. When I interact with that community, they tend to be very unequivocally pro-Israel, with a lot less wishy-washiness on the issue. So I wonder about how this poll was conducted and how they defined their population. Yeah, I even think it depends on part of the country. I mean, I grew up in uh, New Jersey, which is, um, you know, very politically to the left. Um, and so the even the feelings, not just on political issues, but something like uh, religious issues, people are much more timid to express their opinions and their views uh, if they don't line up with the normal cultural norms, where being now in the Midwest, a more conservative social value is uh, much more comfortable for people to talk about our, uh, you know, regions much more politically um, conservative. And so uh, at least on a social level. And so it's easier to engage on some of these issues where uh, in some of the liberal bastions of politics, you're not going to necessarily um, get people open and talking about some of this stuff uh, where they're going to, uh, you know, they're going to be the closet Trump supporter, if you will, you know, that, that, that in 2016, everybody was so surprised about. But here in Mahoning County, for instance, it had voted blue since Kennedy. And um, for the first time, this last election, 2020, by three or five percentage points, voted for um, Donald Trump. So it shifted in its views. And and it was interesting to watch because they voted down ballot blue, but then voted conservative. I don't necessarily want to get into all the politics, but I think that plays into um, what people are willing to say publicly and what they're willing to say privately. Because there's that element of... Uh, association 
cancel, uh, et cetera. I have a lot of pastor friends. I grew up in New Jersey that uh, there's certain things they'll tell me privately that they can't say from their pulpit. So they can't uh, address um, because of the political climate and the social climate uh, in a state like New Jersey, where I can openly address some of those things and it will be cheered and applauded not condemned, if that makes sense. You know, Pastor Doug, when you describe how people are privately thinking something different than what they say publicly, obviously, in a survey like this, you hope that that's true. In the yeah. previous survey, you hope it's false. Right. right. <laughs> and then it depends on what on what position you take, at least when it comes to the Israel issue. You both are talking about the difficulty of expressing pro-Israel sentiment because of the complexity of Israel's case. When a younger generation, as you said, Rabbi Wulicki, sees things very simply, the least confrontational position. And it's a nice, sexy idea that, well, the Palestinians are being oppressed and Israel's the oppressor. It's a very easy, simple narrative. And in some ways, it's like a bumper sticker versus a book on philosophy. One might be correct, but one is much easier to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Like, for example, in the poll, like in the article that writes up the poll, it says that, you know, this large percentage expressed that they would love to see a Palestinian state alongside Israel. Now, I believe that a huge percentage of them would have said that, but I also know Christian students and they they couldn't find Israel on a map. They don't necessarily understand what side by side means or what a Palestinian state means or what the backdrop of that is. They don't understand what they're even answering because it, it sounds like the live and let live kumbaya position and that's what they're gonna slide naturally to. So it's actually not an informed opinion. Oh, do you think that the Palestinians should have their own state side by side with Israel living in peace? Yeah, sure. That sounds nice. Yeah, yes. But that's not support for the political issue because they don't understand the contours of the political issue. Look, I, I do believe that pastors have to be more unabashed. And this is this might be an unpopular position with some people, but so be it. Never shied away. I think that pastors have to be more unabashed about addressing political issues from the pulpit. Pastors are always worried about losing people, even more than rabbis are. You know, rabbis tend to be, unless they're in a big place like New York, where there's a lot of synagogues around, in most communities in America, if you're the Orthodox, Reformer, Conservative rabbi, you have your community and they don't have many other options of where to go. So you don't, so, you don't have to worry, unless you do something really extreme, you don't have to worry about losing members and people pay membership. With churches, People kind of free flow between them. And if they're unhappy, they're just going to go somewhere else. And pastors worry a lot about it, about losing people in the seats. And I think that the idea that politics is a going concern for one's faith, you know, when you look in the Bible and you see that all of the prophets and all of the, all these great people like, you know, King David and Moses and, and Jeremiah, they're all, they're all dealing with politics. You know, we shouldn't be so afraid of it. And people look at Israel too much as a as this political hot button issue. So the pastor is going to stay away from it. And I think that it's very important um, for pastors to talk about it. I think also a lot of pro-Israel churches that will have trips to Israel won't educate the children in the church, in the in the youth programming, in the youth ministry. They won't educate them about Israel as well. I think there's a lot that can be done there. Then I want to ask both of you on that point, Rabbi Willicky, because you both are talking about engagement and the importance of engaging. And as you said, Pastor Doug, bringing people to Israel, as you're saying now, Rabbi Wilicki, talking about it from the pulpit, letting people know about what's happening in Israel and how important it is. The number of evangelical Christians in the United States alone, again, with the word evangelical being obviously a question what it means exactly, but 
there are tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions. We're talking about a huge community. And I'm curious how both of you think that you can even make a dent. You know, Robert Willicke, you and I are used to a Jewish community, or at least I'm used to a Jewish community, where, you know, 100,000 people is a huge number. For the Christian world, that's not such a huge number. And to affect people in such a way that it actually can make a dent and make an impact in people's attitudes in a significant way, it seems in some ways like spitting into the ocean. How is it even possible? So Pastor Doug, when you speak about engagement, I would ask you first, how is that even possible with such a large community? How can an individual make it make a difference? Yeah, well, I know for me, I have a goal with our congregation that I want to get to a point where more of our folks have been to Israel than haven't. Um, I think I'm up to about 40 or so of our congregation of uh, you probably have four to 500 people to call home. We see anywhere from 200 to 250 on a weekend. Um, but I, I want to get to a spot where the majority have been. Um, two, uh, I've been uh, in partnership uh, with the local federation on various things. We've had uh, Celebrate Israel Nights. We, we've done uh, a gambit of things in the area. Um, but one of the things that we've done here at the church, uh, like having Rabbi in, uh, you know, to do Bible study, to engage with our people. Um, we've also had the local Shlehim in, and they did a uh, whole thing on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It was maybe three years ago. They came in. Uh, we did dedicate a whole Wednesday night to it. They talked about media bias. We went through the whole uh, thing, and we probably had 40 or so people attend that. Um, and so trying to find the space and place to do that um, so that our people are informed um, but the biggest space, if we're talking about young, uh, millennial, Gen Z, evangelicals, um, we have to win the narrative on social media. Stand with us. There's a number of uh, organizations that uh, attempt to, to break into that, um, but th they're getting their doctrine, if you will, from Twitter. Um, it's, bump mm -hmm. it's bumper sticker, unfortunately. They're not reading the book on philosophy, which may be correct. But they're they're glancing and oh that tweet resonated with me so I'm going to retweet it or I'm going to uh, you know all of a sudden adopt this into my philosophy but they haven't thought through any of the ramifications they haven't you know gone one step let alone five or six steps down the road with it and uh, unfortunately the way uh, media social media YouTube all this stuff is working right now uh, we have to win in that arena and I think the best example of this was the 2016 election think what you want about Donald Trump I'm not he won the narrative uh, and he won it sometimes by saying outlandish things, but he stayed in the narrative and he won the narrative on social media. Um, and that allowed him to win the 2016 election. I, I really believe that uh, for uh, the evangelical community and in Christian Jewish relations, we have to begin to win the narrative on social media. Dennis Prager does a great job and others are trying to break into that. Um, but that's where they're getting their news. That's where they're getting their doctrine. That's where they're getting their stuff. And so while engaging in, in a deep sense with leaders is important, like I, I can shift my church, that's good. Um, but if we want to talk about broad sense and we want to talk about millions of people, um, that's going to be the spot to do it. And Rabbi Wilicki, how about you? When you discuss and describe setting up clubs for students at Christian seminaries, that's great. But at the same time, we are talking about a few students out of tens of millions of people. Are you actually making a dent? Yeah, look, I think the student clubs are great and we're doing them and there's going to be a certain number of students who are affected. But I believe that the most important work that we're doing uh, is actually with the academics themselves. And what we've been doing is every school that we engage, we make efforts and it usually involves a visit by myself or by the head of outreach, the director of outreach for the fellowship, uh, Roger Cheeks, 
We'll go out to the school and we start to build relationships with the professors themselves and try to find professors who are leaning in our direction and can become allies and start to build relationships with the academics, including, again, if it wasn't for COVID, we already would have done one of these, but we're going to start doing, uh, we already have the first trip planned, regular trips where we're bringing groups of professors of Bible and theology who are, who are teaching specifically in the seminaries and in the, or in the, in some of the colleges, some of the universities themselves, they'll have a seminary program where people are, are studying to be leaders, to be pastors, uh, because those are the people who really set the thinking. Uh, they're training the next generation of leaders. I don't know how many times, and Doug, you're going to laugh when I say this, but because you've probably been there, or I walk into a church and the pastor will be like in his 70s and he's really pro-Israel and he's been to Israel 10 times and he loves Israel. And his, his, uh, his young associate pastor who's fresh out of Bible college is kind of like not interested in the whole topic. Yeah. And that has a lot to do with what goes on in the classroom. In the classroom, in the seminaries, the theology is still kind of old fashioned. A lot of it's still stuck in a lot of supersessionism, even in evangelical schools. And building these relationships and starting to get the academic community to have more, more of a conversation, a, a positive conversation about Israel, having more academics visit Israel. Because what Doug said about himself, it's not just a young, impressionable, impressionable pastor. Every Christian, even yeah. I, I've seen this happen with, with Christian professors who are in their 50s, who've been teaching theology for 25 years, and they come to Israel, yeah. and certain switches get flipped, and, and it changes them, and they start looking at things differently. And so engaging the, those who are training the leaders is a very important part of our work. And that, I think, is where my biggest impact in this area is going to come. I can totally speak to that because I was the young associate pastor that got, uh, you know, became a, a head of my own church. And then I had a mentor who, who was in his 60s who invited me to a Youngstown Celebrates Israel planning event. And I remember saying to my admin, you know, this really isn't my cup of tea, but I was invited by a mentor. So I guess I'll go. And I showed up to the meeting and they had bagels and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, we had some refreshments and um, they explained what the event was going to be. And I was like, OK, this is going to be different. I've never been to anything like this. Um, and I told my wife we were going to go. Now, we didn't know that uh, everybody's going to be like in suits and ties. So we were underdressed. Nobody told us the dress code. And they handed us an Israeli flag and we came in. They had reserved seats for us as pastors. And we sat in the front and I looked at my wife during the opening thing. And I'm like, what? is this? I, I, I have no context for this, but it was that event that then 10 months later, I ended up on a trip to Israel and that, that totally, I, now I connect with that event. The next year I spoke at that event, but I didn't realize what that was. And I was just kind of like, all right, you know, I was invited to this by somebody who's important to me. So I guess I'll go. But the whole time I was kind of thinking to myself, what have I got my, like, what is this? I don't understand. And it wasn't until I went to Israel that I connected those pieces. Yeah, but Doug, there's a huge lesson in that, which is your mentor who invited you wasn't just inviting a random Christian that he met right. in the supermarket. He was inviting a pastor. Yeah. He was inviting someone who would, who would one day be leading a growing church. So if pastors who themselves are, are pro-Israel and have Israel as part of their, their biblical worldview and part, of their, and part of how they lead their church, which you do, it's, I mean, Israel's part of, it, it's part of the ethos of your church. Yeah. That happened, that, that all started because some other pastor reached out to them. Made an investment. You know, so that, that's a lesson there that when you're doing, the next time you bring the shlichim to your church, if you reach out to some other pastors and say, hey, why don't you come to this? Maybe that could make a difference. In terms of what you just said, Rabbi Wiliki, a moment ago about academics teaching theology and trying to 
impress Israel upon their biblical worldview or allow it to be part of their biblical worldview. That raises a question which I want to ask both of you, because when we talked before about what I called the bumper sticker versus the book of philosophy, I was really speaking about Israel's political case. Now, I'm not someone who claims that Israel is never wrong. I think Israel does make mistakes, as any country in the world does. But Israel's overall narrative, I believe, is very justified from a political perspective. But there's also a completely different perspective to which you were alluding a moment ago, which is the biblical, religious, theological perspective. And as religious people, we would say, Jews have a right to Israel regardless of the political justification yes. because of the biblical and religious justification. So my question is this, when engaging with Christians, what is the smart way to engage them? Is it right to start off and teach them the theology and then go into the politics or work the other way around? First explain the political justification and then move on to the theology. What do you think, Pastor Doug? I think, honestly, it depends on what type of Christian you're dealing with. If you have a Bible-believing Christian, I can't help but look at that text, and I see God make an everlasting covenant, and I believe that everlasting means everlasting. And then I, I look at the promises and the, and the, the prophets and, and, and all of that, and when I look at that, I, I don't see some, uh, well, maybe that, like, I, I read it, uh, I believe, like, uh, like you guys would look at it and say, well, Israel belongs to the Jews. And so in that sense... Um, I think if you're if you're talking to a Bible believing Christian, starting with the biblical case and the theology um, uh, is great. I mean, exposing them, obviously, to the land is awesome. But if you're just talking dialogue, I think um, that's where I would start. Um, but if you have somebody that's, uh, you know, left leaning, I usually start with, you know, they're, uh, you know, go ahead and try and have, you know, LGBTQ rights in a different country. Go ahead and like that from a democratic standpoint, the, the, the way that um Israel conducts itself. It's free. It's open. Um, you know, you want to have that conversation. You're on the political left. I don't know how you can side with, uh, you know, go ahead and go to Syria or Egypt and try and, you know, have a rally for one of these things and see, see what happens. You know, in, in Israel, there's there's so much uh, Western philosophy. Uh, unfortunately, that's become a narrative on the left side of the aisle politically in, in America that, um, they, they, they don't care for Western values. Unfortunately, I, I don't know if they've read, haven't read a history book or, or what the problem is, but I think what uh, Israel brings to the table, both politically and uh, spiritually are vitally important, but I think it's really reading the person. And if, if they're coming at this uh, from a more uh, secular standpoint, rather than a biblical standpoint, um, just calling themselves a Christian in name only, you're going to have to start in two different spots. Well, Lickie, what do you think about that? Uh, I, I think that there's a third piece of the puzzle, which is me, which in my in my experience is the most important piece of the puzzle over and above biblical theology versus the politics uh, that that transforms Christians view of Israel. And that's the personal relationships. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you, you know, look, Doug, you said it yourself. You came on your trip to Israel and the most impactful yeah. experience wasn't walking where Jesus mm -hmm. walked. It was being in an Orthodox Jewish home for Shabbat dinner Absolutely. and the laughing and the singing and the family atmosphere and experiencing that it was it was it was getting to know. I mean, I'm not tooting my own horn, yep. but our friendship, you know, has become an important piece of it. And I see this over and over again. And and this affects the theology, Scott, because for so many Christians, all this whole question is very abstract question. And suddenly when they're when they have a friend, and they have all these stereotypes about what Jews believe and who they are. Once they have a friend who 
is respectful of them and they gain respect for that person. And that person's Jewish and lives in Israel and they start talking and they get to know each other and they have shared concerns and they laugh together and they talk about God together and they, and they connect. Suddenly all the other issues, both the political issues and the theological issues are framed differently. They're suddenly in the part of the context of, of their thinking is their relationship. And uh, I think that could be the most impactful uh, uh, thing. So again, that, that speaks directly. Maybe I'm also saying this to, you know, to reinforce what I do, but this is, you know, I believe that a big part of what I'm doing is building relationships. You know, when, when I go around to churches, very often my Jewish friends say to me, you know, what do you speak about when you go to the churches? Do you always talk about Israel? And Doug knows, no, I don't actually. I, I talk about all kinds of things, but the main thing that I, that I do is I make relationships, you know, through my relationship with Doug, I have all kinds of friends in Bridge of Hope out in Youngstown. When they think about Israel and I'll get messages, Doug, from people in your church, like when Israel's getting bombed, I'll get messages from people in your church who know me, who feel that I'm their connection, their personal connection to this saying, you know, we're praying for you or, you know, how are you doing? I think the personal contact is critical. There's a lot more to discuss, and hopefully we can continue this conversation at a different time. But before we go, Doug, I'm sure that our listeners are very intrigued by that comment, which Pesach just referred to, about how the most impactful moment of your trip to Israel was Shabbat dinner. Could you just in two minutes explain why that was so? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I'd never been uh, to uh, Shabbat dinner. Uh, I had Jewish friends growing up, but most of them were not uh, practicing. Um, And so... Uh, you know, I, I never got to experience that 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 freshness. But then to be in Israel, um, and then to go to uh, be in Jerusalem, we went to the Western Wall on Shabbat. Got to experience that for the first time. You could hear the roar, you know, a mile away as you got off the the tour bus of everybody singing and dancing. And um, I've never felt the presence of God like I felt it anywhere else uh, than I have at the Western Wall. Uh, my my wife would say the same thing. She got to uh, come with me in 2019 to have that moment, get back on the bus. And then you go into a home of someone who, you know, is practicing a tradition that's been going on for thousands of years. And it doesn't matter if you're in Israel or if you're in New Jersey or you're wherever you are, the, the, the meal is pretty much the same and the symbolism and the meaning. And, uh, you know, I say often to uh, rabbi, I'm a better Christian because of my relationship with him. I love the scriptures more. I, I want to be closer with God um, because of our interactions. And I, I remember leaving that, coming home from the trip and all the pictures, all the souvenirs. I said to my wife, I was like, we should, we should, we need to do like a Shabbat dinner. I have to figure that out. I, I went to one. I have, I got this little, they gave me this little <laughs> manual on how to do it. I was like, but it was so rich and, and the, they, they turn off their technology and uh, just being in that atmosphere and shutting down to be with the Lord, to be with family, and to, to really make a sacred space of time um, is something that we don't do in any capacity. We talk about recharging our batteries or whatever, and we put some sort of uh, leadership spin on it. But the idea that, you know, God called it holy, um, and, and if we do that, there's, there's some sort of uh, spiritual benefit and return. And so it was that, and, and the family was very sweet, and um, you know, the husband sang to his wife and blessed his children. And like, it, it was so, I have four kids and it was so special to think every week they're praying a blessing over their children. They're, uh, you know, professing their love to their wife in front of their children. Like some of these things are, uh, you know, important uh, even outside of a religious context, but it, that to me was top three moments in Israel on that first trip. Scott, I don't know how much time we have, but we have time for a very quick story. This is a story about Doug 
And I don't know, Doug, I don't know if I ever told you this whole thing. So when Doug brought his, uh, a group from his church in 2019, when they were in the airport in the States before they left, okay, and this is a group that mostly had never been to Israel before. So in the airport, they were in, they were in the airport in New York about to take off for Israel. And Doug did a Facebook live that I watched where he went to each of them mm -hmm. sitting in the gate and said, what are you most looking forward to on your trip? And almost every one of them said that the thing they were most looking forward to was getting baptized in the Jordan, which is a big deal for Christians. Scott, I mean, I, I know your listeners are, are Orthodox Jews, but it's a huge deal for Christians to get baptized in the Jordan. And almost every one of them said that. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. Now I spoke to this group, Doug had me come, I came to the hotel at the end of the trip, like the night before they left. So they had already spent Shabbat in Jerusalem and on their Shabbat in Jerusalem, they went I knew that this was on their itinerary, that they were going to be going to, to the homes of, of people in Jerusalem. This is a program called Shabbat of a Lifetime that's done for, for Christian tourists. So I knew that they were going to be doing that. So I had them at the end of the trip. I didn't tell them that I watched that Facebook Live. But, but before I spoke to them, I went around the room and I asked each one of them, what was the highlight of your trip? Not one of them said getting baptized in the Jordan. Yeah. Almost every one of them. I think all but one said Friday night dinner, Shabbat dinner in a Jewish home. Yeah. For people like me and for many of our listeners who are not as engaged as you are, Robert Willicke, with the Christian community, what you said before, Pastor Doug, is actually what we call chizuk. It's encouragement for us as well to know the gift that we have in Shabbat. So I mm -hmm. thank you for your words. And I thank both of you for joining me today. This is very, very enlightening, and I appreciate it. Pastor Doug Reed, Rabbi Pesach Willicke, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Remember to go to jewishcoffeehouse.com for lots of great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chuchmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. You can also find my blog, The Scott Conversation, there. Please also share this podcast so we can get the word out about the Orthodox conundrum to an even bigger audience. And please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron by going to our Patreon page. The link is in the description of this podcast. You can get extra episodes, articles, merch, and more while also supporting our work. So please check it out today. I'm Scott Kahn, and this has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. <laughs>